All right. Uh, Going to get started. I see that we've already got a few callers in the queue. So I am going to just start taking uh, calls uh, right away. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy to talk about whatever people have on their mind. Uh, yeah, I see the comments in the chat about what exactly we're getting started. Basically, I just wanted to give it a few minutes, let people trickle in. I didn't have a particular, uh, particular time in mind, but, um, but yes, as I said, happy to chat about, uh, whatever questions people have on uh their minds uh absolute worst case scenario i could just say you know eh, not sure i have much to say about that let's go to the next one but i will try to uh gamely answer almost anything uh within uh within reason uh you know i suppose if somebody calls in and starts you know i don't know yelling and screaming the stuff the little girl says to the exorcist i might go to the next call but uh short of that you know uh or some distance from that, uh, I will. Uh, I will try to take everybody. So let's start with Adam. Adam, what's on your mind? Hey, so uh, interesting class today. Um, I did not realize we had to sign up for it. <laughs> so I, my first question is, uh, where can I sign up for the uh, class that you're hosting? Yeah. So uh, for anybody who's not familiar with what Adam's talking about. Um, so I'm teaching an online class uh, about uh, uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon's book, uh, The Philosophy of Poverty, and uh, Karl Marx's response, The Poverty of Philosophy, uh, just doing that through the Patreon. So uh, if you go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess, uh, uh, you'll see it'll offer you two membership levels. One is just the thing to be a regular Githamon ar argument patron and then the others for the class. Or if you're already a Githamon argument patron, then A, congratulations, you're one of the best humans who, who's alive. But B, uh, just go to the Patreon and, and you know, and you, you should see, like, uh, if you go to your account, okay. whatever, to upgrade to the other level, the other tier. Okay, that makes sense. All right. And then I guess my other question would be, um, so I have read, I know I said I was kind of a freshman in a senior class. I have literally only read Reform or Revolution um, because Left Reckoning was doing a video series on it. So is there like a top three theory books you would recommend since I'm doing this class? Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, you ever read the Communist Manifesto? No, I have not. Okay. Well, I think that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty obvious one to start with. And it's very, um, and I think it's like accessible. It's very like sturdy. I remember the nation magazine back in 1998. I'm very old. Uh, I remember reading this when I was 18, uh, did a special issue on the 150th anniversary of the manifesto coming out in 1848. And one of the articles in there having a line about how you sort of, uh, you know, uh, even if you're not a Marxist, it's like uh, reading that, you know, rhetoric in the manifesto. It's, uh, you know, they compared it to the scene in Casablanca where everybody starts singing along with the Marseille. You know, it's like, you know, you don't have to be French you know, to, uh, to sing along. So, yeah, I think the Communist Manifesto is an obvious place to start. That's like a minute in an afternoon kind of book uh, by 
by Marx and Engels, uh, if you uh, if you wanted um, something that's like kind of uh, longer, uh, I guess two things that come to mind are one: if you just check out like the Marx Engels Reader, uh, that's that's a book that has like I've used that as a textbook before. It has a bunch of different selections from different books, and it's like it tends to have like kind of the most accessible things. So I think that's like a good one to check out as far as like primary source readings for Marx and Ingalls. And then as far as uh, secondary stuff, it's like a longer book, but I think it's very clear. Uh, there's a book by uh, G.A. Cohen uh, called uh, Karl Marx's Theory of History and Defense that I think is like a, you know, I mean, if you want to just get like a really thorough, um, uh, you know, if you want to get just like a really thorough like uh, introduction to to uh, to Marx's ideas, that's like really like that's uh, really clearly laid out. It's like okay, he says this. Here are three different ways of interpreting it. You know, here's why I think that you know we should see it this way. Here's exactly what that means. That's like laid out really rigorously like that. I think yeah, the Karl Marx's theory of history is is really good for that. But also, honestly. Like what you're reading is like uh, perfectly reasonable. I mean, it's like a little bit eccentric because like so few people even read Pradam now. But like uh, certainly, poverty of philosophy is like a perfectly reasonable Marx place to you know to start. And I think you're okay. But yeah, if you want to do a little supplemental reading, those are the things that come to mind. Okay, yeah, just because like just to give some background, like I've I didn't go to college, and when I was in high school, I always was heading towards manufacturing. And so I've like never done any thing like, like analytical reading and stuff like this. It's very new to me. So it seems it's interesting. Nice. Yeah. But, uh, all right. Awesome. Uh, thank you for answering my questions. All right. Thanks, Adam. All right. F, what's in your mind? Sorry. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Awesome. Um, so, uh, I've been listening to, uh, your show and other sort of affiliated shows or podcasts or whatever for a while. Um, and I guess uh, I've had a recent, like, kind of call it a sticking point sure. where within sort of call it like, uh, effectively, this is like generally about what is the dysfunction within, within leftist discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, Right. You have a you're speaking to other leftists and something goes awry. Um, people start like maybe it's like name calling or, or saying like this is uh, bad faith, disingenuous. And I guess. And, and so in particular, I'm interested in like you as applying like logical analysis, like surely even when you're talking to people that you're collaborators with, you might see some sort of call it logical deformation. Sure. How do you how do you deal with it, and also how do you what do you view like the source of it as, um, and in general like you know how do we make uh, the discourse better? Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean there are a few different questions there, but I think I'll do my best for all of them. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, look, my first book, Give Them an Argument, was a attempt, among other things, to sort of convince lefties, people who share my political goals, to 
care more about getting the arguments right and, and then to kind of show how to do it and like kind of be something like a short informal logic textbook that's uh that's kind of geared towards people on the left um and yeah i, I mean i think okay so there are a couple of, so one thing you asked about was about when people say things that you know you sort of said they're like logical deformations to or whatever um who maybe are like people that i like people i'm collaborating with uh and I, I guess this is probably pretty obvious, but I think one just like immediate thing to say about that is, you know, pick your battles, right? Like, uh, and I think that's true actually, whether you're talking to, to, to ideological friends or enemies, um, that you're just not going to, like, I think if you spend your life like responding to everything that anybody ever says that's wrong, then one, uh, you know, you're going to be widely disliked. And two, uh, I, I think you're going to get bogged down in a lot of weeds that you don't necessarily need to to get bogged down in. And like I said, I think that's actually even true when you're arguing with people that you, you don't like. I mean, I was uh, – yesterday, Nathan Robinson was doing this class that he invited me to come in and talk to about basically arguing with right-wingers, and this is something that came up there that, like um, – you know, you're always going to have, um, you know, you're always going to have people who say, who, like, if you're arguing with somebody, you just kind of disagree with about everything, right? Like uh, Charlie Kirk or whatever. Uh, like, there are going to be all kinds of things whizzing by you that are like, you think are wrong or, you know, just wrong on the substance or terrible arguments or whatever. And if you just kind of try to respond to all of them, then one, it's not going to work. You're only, you're only going to get to some, and you're probably not going to necessarily be spending your time on the stuff you think it's most important to spend your time on. So I think, you know, you want to think about, like, what you want, like, a, an audience member to get out of this and whether you're sort of focusing the conversation where you want to focus. Now, I know you were asking about the context of talking to people you know, who I do like, right? And and I think specifically, uh, maybe you can clarify, but I mean, when you started to ask the question, it was like kind of about people uh, responding to things in sort of a scoldy way or sort of being, uh, being like really quick to dismiss things as bad faith or like just kind of going into denunciation mode instead of like really dealing with people's arguments and like how to... Like, like, like that's more what you were thinking about, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think that, um, I mean, look, when I started doing stuff on, on YouTube, it wasn't on my own show. It was on, you know, a segment on the Michael Brooks show and, uh, you know, um, like, you know, love the shit out of that man, but I mean, like his, uh, you know, his instinct is often more to like sort of dunk on things and make fun of them, which is not illegitimate. Right. But it's like, that was always part of this sort of, you know, odd couple thing that we were doing that like, he would kind of do that. And I'd sort of earnestly focus in on the arguments, whatever we're talking about. Uh, I mean, I think that, so if the context is like, you're arguing with them, that I think that's one context. And if it's like, you're sort of both addressing the same people that you disagree with, 
but they're addressing them in like a sort of very denouncy, scoldy way that you think is not the right approach. Uh, if it's that second one, I think like, I think it's fine every once in a while to like say something about it. It's like, yeah, I don't really think this is what's going to convince people or whatever. But I also think just kind of like modeling a better approach or just kind of try to redirect the conversation, you know, to the stuff that you think is a more useful line of attack is oftentimes the more helpful approach there. And yeah, I mean, if you're talking about like intra-left arguments, right, that like people who are on the left who are arguing with each other and people take it to this like really scoldy, denouncing place. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, this is incredibly depressing. It's a big problem. This is something I said in that first book that like one of the reasons I want lefties to be better at getting the arguments right is because if your only tools for pushing back against uh, views that you don't like are, are mockery and moral denunciation, uh, when disagreements arise on the left as they have approximately once every 15 minutes since the French Revolution, um, then inevitably these are the weapons you're going to turn on each other and that it becomes incredibly toxic and unappealing. And that thought was basically the core of the second book that I wrote, you know, Cancel Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, that I, I see a lot of that. And it's really bad. And I think there are probably a few different reasons for it. Um, that part of it's just that the serious left, you know, people who are, you know, basically anybody who's to the left of just being like a liberal have been, at least in societies like the U.S. and the U.K., they've been so far from the levers of real world power for so long but I think a lot of people get used to thinking about politics um, not as a serious effort to change the material world, but just as a kind of, you know, symbolic moral protest against the many very real injustices they see around them. Uh, they show they're like, I'm a good person who's against all of this. And I'm going to, you know, display that. And I think that oftentimes, unfortunately, people end up displaying it at each other's expense, you know, that they, uh, you show that like you're really a good ally or whatever, uh, by by going after people who, you know, maybe you only have small disagreements with and interpreting everything they say in the most toxic and uncharitable way and um, doing this this kind of, like, hair-triggered denunciations. Uh, so it's like, I think that's like kind of an internal pathology of the left that comes out that way, especially because it's so, so much of what we think of as the left, you know, certainly to pick you know, the national context that I obviously know the best, the U.S., uh, so much of what we think about is the left is really just like media, like journalists and academics and as relatively disconnected from any kind of working class movement on the ground. And I think that also kind of contributes to, to that awful <laughs> atmosphere that you're talking about. Uh, and, and I also think just like the fact that so much of it takes place online contributes to it because, you know, the corporations that own all the social media platforms and YouTube and all those, like uh, their business model kind of thrives on uh, toxicity. So it's unfortunately not surprising that you see a lot of that. And I think with the kind of the internal pathologies, of the left intersect with that like much bigger problem in American society the results can be really bad and really ugly. And I don't necessarily look, if I had a magical solution <laughs> to make it go away, I, uh, I, I would definitely not be holding back on you. Uh, I don't, but I think you could at least, um, I think you could at least like try to model something better and, um, uh, 
you know, and, and show people. I think there's some value in that in and of itself, right? Because like there are a lot of people who we might be able to win over with a left program because uh, they would benefit from it, right? You know, that they that like the kinds of things that we advocate would make their lives better, but who kind of get one look at the left or whatever they think the left is, you know, whatever sort of confused medley of, you know, online social justice stuff and, you know, the least helpful forms of college activism or whatever they have in mind. Uh, or they see like, you know, that DSA convention that Tucker Carlson displayed where, you know, nobody's allowed to clap. And they're like, yeah, I want nothing to do with that. And I think the more you can show um, that it's, that there are, the more you can show that all of that can detach from being a leftist or a socialist, I think the more appealing that you've made that for people to come over it to. I mean, this is why, like, um, the example I always think about is the, uh, like, four years ago, that um, uh, Slavoj Žižek, Jordan Peterson debate, like, something I think Slavoj explicitly said about what he was doing there is, like, he, he didn't, you know, he just, uh, mostly his goal in that debate was just to show, um, you know, it was just to show like young guys who might like Jordan Peterson that you can be, you know, that there's a sort of like smarter and more laid back and funnier, you know, way of uh, of being a leftist, which, you know, is, is more likely to be appealing to them than just like going in and, you know, telling them they're horrible people and denouncing them. I don't know. There was a, did any of that actually answer your question? Uh, yeah, no, that, um, I think that was all, uh, uh, useful. I, I feel like I have more sort of pointed questions, but then it just becomes me sort of like refighting my battles with you. Oh, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's pick one. Let's, let's, let's pick one of them and do it for a minute. Uh, I am, cause I'm actually okay. kind of curious. Okay. So, so I mean, and uh, this is actually also, by the way, it's, uh, it's, it's with somebody, you know, that I've gotten into like a. It's via Discord, right? So it's via text, which I think hopefully is a little less, you know, yeah. sort of like a, 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 I don't know, a gladiator battle. But the question is, rather, and actually, it, it, it's it's really about the Doug Lane versus uh, uh, Matt Bender debate. I don't even really want to call it that regarding, um, you know, the nothing burger of Twitter files. But ultimately, the question was, you know, is this... And this is this is actually it's not isn't what it boils down to, but it's sort of like uh, an exemplar. Is disinformation by definition legal? Meaning it's 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 legal speech, it's protected speech. And and so I was like, okay, well, why would that be the case? And they kind of laid out some stuff. And and, and this is also kind of just a replay of like the Bender argument. But I was like, okay. But why is that the definition? Uh, like, where is this? Where is this defined? Is it defined in law? And they made the point: well, it's the, in the EU, it's defined literally by law that disinformation is illegal. And then they gave like a sequence of arguments why it's why it's or, or why disinformation is by definition legal in the U.S. Uh, but I was like. And, and then I, you know, there's examples of where, for instance, in like legal uh, ruling, it's like you know, disinformation is called illegal in particular because it was used to disenfranchise voters by getting them to believe they could vote some other way and sort of 
get them to not act. Anyways, and there's other there's other ways that you could, you know, I think slander libel and some other things, right? Where it's like, so so it's like, well, but why are you keeping hammering with the definite by definition? Disinformation is legally protected speech. And to me, it boiled down to this sort of broader, it's more of like, an, it's not a logical connection, but they're trying to make it. It's more of like an affective, like I'm afraid of my speech being impaired and the government's going to tell us what is true and what we can't say. And, but it, it, to me, it, it does really boil down to wait, but why is it by definition? Like, Sure, there's tons of different, most disinformation, I'll say, is probably legally protected, but it is not by definition. And and to your point, it's it, like before about, uh, 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 you know, get the argument right. It's like, look, yes, we should protect speech. I'm not against that. And, but, you know, but, and what, what comes at me is, no, you are trying to protect the government's ability to impair our speech. I'm like, I don't think that's what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to tell you is that, like, your your sort of argument isn't coherent. And in particular, it you know, it's the same thing you're trying to fight against. Anyways, okay, so is that... Is that yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, a couple thoughts about that. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I haven't seen Doug versus, versus Bender... Um, I, I actually do personally think, uh, that like, I don't, uh, well, whatever, maybe later, you know, maybe as we continue the conversation, give you my take on the Twitter file stuff, but, um, but just, just sticking for now with the point about arguments, I, I guess something I think about a lot is like, um, it's really easy whenever you argue with somebody to, like get really hung up on a point that like, you know, you think obviously X, they think obviously not X. And like, if you're just baffled enough by, you know, by this disagreement, it's like, how could you not see, not see X or not see not X. Then, you know, you, you could end up spending like your whole time arguing about that. And, and I, I think that's often often really unhelpful because um, what I would want to do, I think, you know, really regardless of which side of that argument I was on, would be to like refocus it on like sort of like look, say like for example, like if if I were you know, hey, I don't think that it's by definition legal, but is that really the issue here? Like, and then kind of try to get back to like. Like, what's the importance of whether it's by definition legal, right? Like, you know, it's like, let's say it is, then what follows, right? Or like, let's say it's not, right? <laughs> then, then, then why is that important, right? Like, like in other words, like, because uh, getting sort of caught up in this giant thing about what the definition is of, of disinformation, um, I mean, I, I think I, I, I can like really see how that could get frustrated and, and uninformative, right? Because it's like, okay, like let's say you win. This is the definition of disinformation. Now let's talk about Schmiss information, which is like like that, but without that requirement, right? You know, let's now now we can argue about what's true about Schmiss information. Like that's you know, so I don't I mean, because yeah, I think that like 
whether or not disinformation is by by definition legal in the U.S. And I mean, actually, that voting example is interesting because that's like sort of push into probably is legal. I don't know. But like um, that's sort of pushing the boundaries of what like, you know, it doesn't sound crazy to say maybe shouldn't be legal. Uh, you know, if you're if you're trying to like, you know, knowingly give people false information, you know, in the hopes that they won't exercise their legal rights. Uh, but like, why why does that matter, right? Why why it why is it important? Whether it's by definition legal is is that like, you know, if it turned out that it was by definition legal, like would that act? Well, I mean, actually, so so maybe like. Uh, like, I'd actually be curious to hear your answer to that. Like, if for the sake of argument, it, tur- it turned out that Doug, perhaps, whoever it was you were arguing with, uh, is right, uh, that, uh, that like, it is, it is definitionally legal in the U.S., would, would that change anything you think about any of this? Um, okay, so that's a fair question. I, uh, well... I guess so. Firstly, my my difficulty is in in this example. I feel like like it's just not the case. And my my issue is that they then point to all these other sort of things that people are saying and saying like, see, they are working against our cause. See, they are trying to undermine our rights. So I guess when you say, is it by definition like legal? Uh-huh. My is then that there have been judgments and in fact literally in the headline of this one doj case they called it disinformation which perhaps doug could say well that's them trying to uh, whatever it is like shift the overton window like even if you're very very convinced right that that you're right about this like I mean, look, it could be that the answer, you're so sure that the answer to this question doesn't even matter, right? But, like, I, I think it is a useful exercise to at least ask yourself, right? It's like, if this is, um, like, okay, if I were wrong about this, would it actually change my conclusion? Or does does this really not go to the sort of core of why I feel the way I feel about this? Okay, so, so uh, you know, point taken. And, and, in fact, if it were the case that I were wrong about it, then it would be concerning that the, like, the use of disinformation is used, like, call it om- ominously. Um, um, and and that, that would be the impetus by which, uh, you know, legislation could be generated that would say disinformation is illegal. And then we'd have to revert to, well, what is the inf- de- uh, definition of disinformation? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just like I'm kind of coming at this from the other end. Like, I think uh, at the uh, at the risk of of uh, of causing an awkward conversation, my my take on some of Doug's Twitter file stuff lately is that I think that he's not totally wrong about it, but I think he's he's been very um, taken by this subject lately in ways that. Um, I think might lead him to be uncharitable about how he sees people who aren't as concerned about it as he is. Right. Like that. I, I think he's, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that like 
I think he's sort of very quick to to assume that like people who talk don't talk about it the way he does or whatever are uh, like like very quick to assume that they're sort of coming from um, I don't know maybe a different way of putting this is I think that like I think that he might like sort of be quick to see to see bigger disagreements than there sometimes are and I also do think that some of what he says about it does strike me as a little bit more apocalyptic than is probably quite justified. That said, I look, I, I'm kind of coming at this one from from the opposite angle to you in a way, or I mean, part of the reason I was curious about your answer to that question is because I am somebody who thinks that, um, you know, on like online censorship by social media corporations, uh, even before we sort of found out that there was this element of government collusion, I found that concerning. Uh, and, and I think that that is like a real thing. I'm very uncomfortable with the whole framework of like, um, like the sort of introduction of this word misinformation and everything. Uh, and, and I am, uh, and I even think that the, the Twitter files, like, I don't actually think they're a nothing burger, right? I think, you know, I think they're, uh, I don't think, I don't think all of them are equally nutritious, right? But I think, I think it's a, it's a something burger. There's, there's like a, there's, there's some, there's some actual meat there. Um, like, I think that they were kind of rolled out in a way that was almost calculated to get half the country not to take them seriously. Cause, um, the, the first, like, practically everybody who's been allowed, who was allowed to look at them was kind of either right wing or, you know, a figure like Taibi himself, who's like sort of ambiguously not somebody who likes or is liked by left wing people anymore. Um, and, you know, the first several installments were about things that are typically conservative preoccupations that we've already heard a lot about, about, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop and the banning of Donald Trump and all that stuff. But as it went on, I actually think there were like real things in there that really are concerning. I mean, our, our Bronco Marchetich, uh wrote an article about this for Jacobin. Uh, I don't remember the name, but if you just search Bronco Marchetich Jacobin Twitter files, I'm sure you'll find it where I thought he made a good case that like some of this actually does kind of matter. I think especially uh, some of the Lee Fong stuff, whatever you think about that guy uh, where he's talking about uh, like kind of the Pentagon connection to some of this and, you know, Palestinian accounts uh, being censored and all this stuff uh, really is pretty concerted. And like, I think it's uh, like, like I think it is, I mean, again, I don't think it's the end of the world. I, you know, and I, I kind of always assume some degree of collusion, you know, between uh, big private tech companies and uh, at, at the state, but I, I think it is actually legitimately concerning that there is sort of collusion and, you know, interagent censorship. And I think even if that weren't present, I think private sector censorship is concerning in itself. And I, I don't love this whole framework of misinformation because I don't like the idea of empowering uh, tech companies to decide to like make determinations about what's true and what's false. Cause I, I think realistically political debates almost always include some element of disagreement about truth. Right. Like they're never only about values. They're always to some extent about facts. Like the, you know, the kind of go to example that I always use is like, imagine that, um, 
like imagine that Twitter had existed in 2002 um, and they had like really strict policies against disinformation. Like, what do you think would get, would be more likely to be bounced as disinformation? Uh, saying that, uh, saying that Iraq really did have weapons of mass destruction, like the Bush administration and the New York times said it did, or saying that uh, Bush and Cheney were conspiring to lie to the American public about WMDs. I, so in general, right, I'm not like I, I'm totally in line with it's bad that the uh, social media companies, whatever, have as much power to sort of call it shape the message, identify sort of what is like valid or invalid. Um, I think I fall in line here more with like, well, like we shouldn't be trusting them to begin with. Um, yeah. And, and, and furthermore, searching out sort of other venues, right? Because, you know, I, I think one of the points that people make is like, but it's a public forum. And I'm like, well, it's a, it's a private corporation. We can actually create our own, call it public forums. Um, you know, to be, for it to be truly public, the government would have to control it. And then we have to trust the government. I, I'm in general, I'll just quickly say more in line with like, we need good governance. We need transparent yeah. governance. And like, that's the thing to fight for because we'll always need that. But that ultimately, if it's really on us and we can't trust the governments or the corporations, like we, we need to create like other venues. And there are like decentralized, whatever, like, you know, Mastodon yeah. or whatever. Anyway, so I, I, I'm not unconcerned. And yeah. I also, you know, I, I, I even worked, I, I worked on like a DARPA funded contract that was basically like this big data analysis that was, you know, probably presaging like this sort of work where it was like, hey, how can we analyze big network graphs? How can we do this? It, and in particular, at one point they had like the, I don't know, I want to call it like Department of, I, I, I can't remember if it was Department of or the, the Treasury, but they were coming in wanting to, in my mind, whatever the word, it's like parallel construction. It almost seemed like in my head, literally in the moment when I was hearing these people talk, I was like, they want us to help develop a method for parallel construction, uh, which is basically a way to sort of like arrive at the conclusion you need to arrive at, but via like, you know, after you have some amount of evidence. Anyways, the point being, like, I, I, I believe I know what these dangers are, but that in, I, I'm more concerned, you know, going back to your whole, so like, give uh, the argument. Like, get the argument right, right? Like, it's, uh, anyways, so. I get that. I mean, look, part, part of why I was raising this, I guess the part I didn't get to is just that, like, so I am, I guess, more or less on Doug's side of the argument, but also, um, I think it's probably wrong to say that disinformation is by definition legal. I mean, maybe you're, I don't know. It would never have occurred to me to think that disinformation was by definition legal. It's like, I don't know, probably most of it is. I, I don't, <laughs> you know, some of it might not be. I don't know that the definition is necessarily going to entail that. I wouldn't, wouldn't really want to hang much on that, right? Like, I think, I think there are good reasons to be concerned about this that don't rely on the idea uh, that it's, uh, it's legal. And, you know, and, and I think this is also just, I don't know, maybe just an important thing, like, and, and you know, also I will say, um, I actually do, uh, I actually do, uh, I actually am good with, with public ownership uh, of, uh, of tech platforms. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have kind of your reaction to it. That it's like, well, hold on, if you're like already concerned about censorship, why do you want the government running this? But, um, but I actually think 
I actually think that would be better. And I think that in the U.S. context, especially the effect of public ownership would actually be that the First Amendment would would apply in mean, the same way that, you know, uh, private colleges could fire people for their like opinions. And um, but like you can't, you know, if, if you're if you're a professor at a public university and you're you know fired for your politics, you can sue them for violating your First Amendment rights, you know, because you're a government employee, you can't be disciplined for your protected speech. Uh, then I, I think that the whoever crafted the moderation rules would have to worry about surviving First Amendment challenges, which I actually think would be a good thing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess the broader point just about arguments is like, I, I think it's always, uh, I think it's always like sort of useful to think like, okay, on something like this point, right, is disinformation by definition legal or not? Like, I'm not saying that's not an important question or that you're wrong to, like, call him on getting it wrong if he's wrong about it. But, like, I, I also think that it's, it's like, really good to just sort of think, like, all right, if, if, I've, if I've gotten stuck arguing about this thing, is this really what I want to argue about or is there a good way to sort of peel back and and go to like a more basic question that like you know or or even just be like look i think you're wrong about this but even if you were right here's what i would think like and like as you know because like oftentimes that just feels to me like a more constructive way to kind of keep the argument going all right yeah, no, sorry um, yeah I, I i appreciate that and i mean for what it's worth i I feel like I I tried to do that, but and this yeah. is this is why you know I asked about like okay well you know what do you do when like leftist when leftist discourse goes wrong but yeah. so thank you very much <laughs> no fair enough I like that uh, all right let's keep uh, let's keep it rolling uh, do Jake hi hi Ben hi how you doing good how are you good what's up your mind? Uh, well, uh, actually, just the same thing that the last caller was talking about. <laughs> sure, go for um, it. Um, I'm glad they went first. They were uh, very eloquent in their questions, and it's actually similar. I don't know if you remember a couple months ago, I you were kind enough to let me kind of hijack the end of a conversation to ask you a little bit about Slavoj's compact piece. And really yes. what the last caller asked, I think, is what I was trying to ask, which is um, – and, and we can pick any number of examples, the Doug Lane one – is fine. Uh, um, another good one, maybe lately, uh, the, uh, top of mind is uh, this sort of weird thing with Anna Kasparian a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, um, to, again, to the point of like, if we're trying to strengthen and bolster the the real leftist argument, how yeah. do we deal with people who we find? I mean, Doug Lane, for example, again, just Sublation Media, Zero Books. I, I think he signed Michael's first book, right? Like clearly a committed leftist, clearly a smart guy. I understood his point about state censorship. Yeah. But uh, when you're watching a conversation and um, again, we don't, I, I keep bringing this one up. It's just I watched it last night. Um, Bender points out to him specifically something that was said in the Twitter files. He has to quote the Twitter files to Doug 
And Doug just sort of goes, oh. Um, and it, it, similar in the compact piece, I think Slavoj was, was um, pretty dis uh, intellectually dishonest with the Anna Kasparian thing. Uh, th there's like a clip of her basically making a rebuttal against herself from a year yes. ago. And, and so when you have people, it feels like they're reducing the argument. How do you deal um, with that, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, I mean, I think that well, okay, so one point I would make about all of this um, you know, as you know, right, I, I don't have the same take on all these individual cases that that you do which is fine. Um, no reason we have to, but I, I will, um, I will say kind of in the same spirit as what I was talking about with the previous caller about uh, uh, sort of like, okay, if I were wrong about this, even if I'm sure I'm right about it, right? If I were wrong about this, would it actually change anything? And if not, can I maybe bracket this and be like, Hey, I think you're wrong, but even if you weren't, blah, 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 right? Like kind of in the same way, I think it's sort of a useful exercise to to think um, how would I feel about this if it were the other way around? Uh, and, and, you know, if I wouldn't find this convincing if it were the other way around, right? Is there a reason I should find it convincing here? So uh, the... You know, like I think like in the, you know, Indiana case uh, that you mentioned. Uh, so, you know, there's a, you know, there's there's a clip where she, you know, there's an old clip where she says that the phrase people who may become pregnant is fine and there are good reasons to use it in some context. And there's the more recent tweet people got mad about where she, you know, she objected to the phrase birthing persons. And, and I guess, uh you know, the two things I'd say about that are, are one, I think it is worth like really keeping an eye on the fact that there's, there's no disagreement about policy here, right? It's, 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 there's, it's like purely an argument about language choices, which doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't matter. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, any particular side of that argument is right. It's just like, I think something worth keeping in mind, right? As far as how we feel about each other when we're having that argument. And then uh, two, uh, I'd say, okay, well, what if it were the other way around? Like, what if uh, there were some clip from, um, what if now in 2023, uh, she was saying that the phrase birthing persons was fine, but there was like an old clip from a few years ago where she said the opposite, right? Where she said like, I, you know, the phrase is bad. It's like, uh, clinical and dehumanizing or whatever, like, would that mean that she was wrong now because like she once said the opposite? I mean, I, I wouldn't say so. Right. I, I would, I would just say like, okay. I mean, sometimes people, you know, like that's, uh, you know, that like, just because she'd like, just because she'd expressed the opposite opinion at one point in the past, I don't, you know, would we really think that that meant she was wrong now? Would we even think that that meant that she was somehow being dishonest or bad faith now? Or would we, or would you be like, oh, good, Anna's like progressed. She's gotten better, 
right? Like, uh, I, I think realistically, I think that's probably how, you know, most people who, who think that the phrase birthing persons is fine would react if it were that way around. So I, I, I guess I don't, I don't quite get saying like, oh, it's somehow like what she's saying now is somehow invalidated by the fact that like she'd said the opposite once, you know, for like 30 seconds, three years ago. Um, well, so I guess I would say that I, I would ask one, I think uh, the chronology probably matters, right? So the, in the yeah. example, if it were the other way around, we would say Anna grew um, and we could say why her, her newer position is better materially. Um, to, and we can support that. Whereas the, in this circumstance, it's, it's not that she's, um, it, her point is invalidated because she made the point contrary at a different time. It's that it, her point now is materially wrong. Um, and I think that's demonstrable. It, you know, I, I live in Florida, um, the legislation, uh, freaks me out honestly and and but, so does you know she doesn't support any of that i mean she said a hundred times that she doesn't support any of that like well well of, co of course but it, the the um the rhetoric that gets used around it and the timing of when and how we talk about those things is is i think important and uh, uh um i i'm sorry i think you had a, a question maybe right at the end sure. so, so, okay so yeah what i wanted to say about that uh, is, uh, I think, I think your answer to my first question was really interesting and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but I, I, I would just say like, just to kind of think about this a little bit, it's like, okay, if it were the other way around, you'd say she grew, but because it was this way around, you say she got worse, but it's like, okay, but that, that in itself suggests that there's nothing like, you know. There's nothing about like that clip that like invalidates what she's saying now. It's just like the fact that like the only reason you see it differently is because you agree with what she's saying then and you don't agree with what she's saying now. Right. So it's like I I don't maybe this is too small a point to be worth getting hung up on, but I just think that it's like if if the only reason to to see it uh to see it that way around is uh or, like if the only reason to think that these are different is because you think that she's wrong now and she was right then, then it's like, then, okay, then I, I just don't see what the old clip has to do with anything. I mean, like we should just be talking about whether or not she's actually right or wrong now. Right. I don't, you know, I, I certainly don't think that that means that like she's somehow dishonest or bad faith or, you know, you know, any, anything like that. I think it's just like, people, I think even the most consistent of us, you know, will sometimes like see things one way, you know, in like a 30 second clip from three years ago and like find ourselves disagreeing later. But, but, but I think the more interesting question is, is like, okay, which time, like, which time did she get it right? Like assuming that those are equivalent to birthing persons and, you know, people who have the capacity to be pregnant. And I don't totally know the the context of the, the, you know, the people capacity present pregnant one but like maybe that's like a a level of detail that it's not worth drilling down into like assuming those are equivalents so assuming that like you know she can't be right both times like I, I i guess the question is like should we think um that should we think that because 
there are these horrible policies that are proposed that anytime you sort of say something that, um, like, for lack of a better way to put it, like, just kind of has, like, in other words, is that a reason to, to use the sort of maximally inclusive language? Because if you don't use it, you're so, you're like somehow siding with the people who, you know, support those policies or, or could it be the other way around, right? That it's like, look, if you want to, if you want to communicate to, you know, the biggest group of people possible because you want to convince them to, to be on our side and not support bad policies and all that, is there some advantage to just using more familiar language and not sort of, you know, saying things that are like, I think very well-intentioned, but like uh, could sound very alienated people because there's something, you know, I think there, you know, there is something that's like kind of, uh, it's like, I think this is sometimes, the, you know, even aside from like the specific context about gender and trans stuff and all that, I think this is something that happens in general with language sometimes that's like, you get, like, you try really hard to, like, being inclusive is good, but I think sometimes if you're like super inclusive, it can sound very artificial and, and alienating and weird to people. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there, if you want to say, Hey, let's, let's speak a language that like most people are going to, are going to like, uh, again, that most people are going to respond well to precisely because we have these important things we want to convince them of that, that I think that might itself be a reason to, to, to use sort of more familiar, less kind of clinical sounded and alienated language and political, you know, communication, and, and I, I get that she did seem to be saying more than that, you know, because she's um, she wasn't just saying that there's like a pragmatic advantage to doing this. She was saying, like, I don't like this language. So she is like personally expressing the preference. But I, I guess I do wonder how. Um, like, I guess my worry, you could I could go back to you. You can tell me what you think about this. Right. But I guess my worry is that if I think that if we're sort of if we go very quickly from disagreements literally not about policy but about like what language to use to describe that policy to like assuming that people aren't really on our side or whatever even if they're sort of people who've kind of been around for it like I guess to me that that actually sort of triggers my concern about some of the stuff the first caller was was talking about about the sort of culture on the left and how it could go wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so, and so that's, I don't want to I don't want to underestimate. Sure. Yeah. I think the um, the the response um, maybe in Anna's case specifically um, sure. that the problem is not necessarily always with. <clears throat> I don't think it's like uh, 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 I think there has to be some separation. It's or it's not, I guess, sort of woke scoldy if, yeah. for lack, um, to, you know, say, hey, this doesn't really make sense now. And then uh, with Anna's thing, there seemed to be particularly a vacuum in terms of a a reason given as to why the 
argument was changed. There really wasn't an argument given in the in that case. And so really I, taking the, like, even I think maybe we can yeah. remove the value from any of these like judgments and just, I, I'd like to maybe try to boil the question down more to like, if you find them acting in what you can only really find to be bad faith, how do you sort of move past that? How do you sort of reconcile that? I sure. think that's maybe more the question. Okay, I think I understand. Um, yeah. I think, I'm sure, think what I want to say about that part. Um, I mean, okay, I, I also want to put my, my biases on the table here, right? Because I don't want to pretend that I'm doing this in a totally disinterested way because I'm not. Like I uh, obviously mean not talking about like a good personal friend of mine, right? So like I'm, I'm uh, you know, obviously going to be a little bit defensive. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be, I promise. Uh, but um, I, I think I would so there. So I guess there are two questions, and I'll, I'll just kind of try to briefly respond to both of them, and then maybe just let you have the last word and move on to the next caller. But uh, one is sort of specifically about the example about Anna, and then the other is whatever's true about Anna. Uh, what about other cases, right? Like, like where you, you think somebody's operating in bad faith and all that, right? So... Um, on the part about Anna, again, I would say, like, if it were the other way around, so it's like she used to disagree with you and now she agreed with you, I wonder if you would take the fact that she hadn't, like, necessarily given you given people much of a satisfying explanation of why she changed her mind as, as evidence of bad faith, right? And, and I don't... I don't think you would. I don't think you necessarily should. I think that, like, I mean, I don't think she really, I mean, I've seen the clip of, like, the old thing. I don't think she really gives that much of a knockdown argument there. I mean, I think she's just kind of expressing irritation, at, you know, like uh, some Republican for for disliking that phrase. Uh, so so I, I think that that's, I think that that's, to me, that's not, like, a convincing reason to think that, that she's operating in bad faith. Um, and I guess to transition to the second part, I just generally think that oftentimes I find, especially on the online left and in sort of left media, you know, beefs and all that stuff, I worry that oftentimes people are way too quick to attribute disagreements to bad faith. Um, and, and I do, for the record, you know, think this might be one of those times. Uh, moving on to the more general issue, it's like, okay, but what if you're not being too quick? What if you're like, what if you're actually right, right? What if somebody actually is operating in bad faith? Um, you know, that like they have, they're being dishonest in some way. Um, they're not trying to, they're not taking the argument seriously or, you know, whatever. Like, okay, well, look, I mean, sometimes that means you should pick your battles about, you know, who's worth arguing with uh, when. 
I also think that people are complicated and that sometimes people get stubborn about particular subjects, especially if they're, especially if they feel like they've been kind of unfairly gone after for them. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're like a, you know, like, like even if somebody isn't, isn't being convinced by arguments you think they should be convinced by, and maybe you're right, right? Maybe they should be like, okay. I mean, none of us are perfectly rational and everybody has blind spots or whatever. It's like, I, I, I guess I also don't think we should be too quick to go from like, you're being a little unreasonable about this particular thing to you're just generally a dishonest person or you're, you know, really a right winger or whatever. Uh, I guess just to try to be more helpful, right? And not just, you know, not just express disagreements. Like I think that in the case where people are really, truly, you know, operating in bad faith, that I guess the question I would always ask is like, okay, what, what's my goal in interacting with them, right? Is my goal to convince them or is it to convince other people who they might convince? Because if it's to convince them, and I don't really think they're approaching the discussion in good faith that I think it's very simple. You should just stop talking to them, right? Because life is short and your resources are probably better spent elsewhere. Uh, but if it's, um, if it's, if my goal is to convince other people who, you know, who might go either way, who are like, you know, everybody else who's like listening into the conversation or watching it on Twitter or whatever, then I would say like, even if somebody really truly is operating in bad faith, just kind of denouncing them for it, saying like, you know, you're a liar and a hack or whatever. And don't get me wrong. As I'm saying this, I can think of recent examples where I have done that. Cause like I'll get frustrated and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say things like that. But like every time I do, I always think, yeah, should I really have done that? Is that the, was that the best like kind of way to approach this? Cause I think if you're, trying to convince people who might like this person or might be sympathetic to this person. I, I don't know my bias and maybe this is just me rationalizing being a nice Midwestern kid, but like I, my bias is always to think that like the most kind of um, effective way of doing that is to just sort of hone in on kind of clearly, cheerfully explaining why they're saying why what they're saying is wrong. Right. Rather than, making it easy for people who like them to dismiss what you're saying. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, they just hate this person or they're just, uh, you know, they're just like a crazy scoldy leftist or whatever. So anyway, those are my thoughts for what they're worth. I'm going to, I'm going to let you have the last word on this. And then I'm going to go to Oliver. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, yeah. Th thanks for the time. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I didn't really want to make you like to besmirch your colleagues and friends just at the same time, that sort of means that you are the perfect person to ask this question in a way. Um, so I hope you don't mind and thank you for the response. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, maybe bad faith is not quite the, the way to frame it. Um, and uh, I, yeah. I'll definitely think about the points that you brought up. Thank you for the time, Ben. Okay. Thanks, Jake. All right. Oliver. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. So uh, when you mentioned Michael Brooks earlier, it reminded me of an impression that I saw earlier today that he did of Jordan Peterson, where he was oh, pointing yeah. out the contradiction between Jordan Peterson saying like, 
you know, the chaos dragon of femininity is omnipresent or some shit like that. And then in the next sentence being like, well, you better quantify racism for me, bucko. Or like, (laughs) (laughs) that was the impression. It was so funny. Yeah. Fun fact. uh, The first ever video of me on YouTube uh, from from 2018, uh, I'm giving like a public talk about Jordan Peterson. Actually, it has this sort of, ridiculous and uh, probably entirely too cute and continental philosophy-ish name of lobsters and proletarians, if you want to look it up. But in that, um, uh, in that there's a, uh, there's a point like he's off screen, but there's a point where you could actually hear uh, Michael in the audience heckling me with a Jordan Peterson impression. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, climate change is real. Exactly. How many degrees will the earth warm? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, you know, chaos dragon of femininity, we know because I had a dream. But also, like, you know, exactly how many degrees I'm per, you know, per week for climate change. Yeah. Yeah, what an insane man. Um, so I have two questions. The first one's about something related to philosophy and taxes. And then the second is about Philip Roth. So, nice. Okay. So the first one is about the Judith Jarvis Thompson paper on abortion, which you've referenced before. Um, I'm largely sympathetic to her defense of abortion. I just think she goes a little bit too far in defending bodily autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. So you you remember the example where she's saying that if you had someone who needed, I think the person's like Henry Fonda, to touch her head in order for her to be able to survive, and Henry Fonda's in the room, the person who needs his touch to survive doesn't have a right to the touch, right? Yeah, that's like a touch on the forehead or whatever. Yeah, this is the cool touch of Henry Fonda's head on your brow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that just seems I, wrong to me, and it also seems, I mean, yeah. irrespective of other questions, right? That seems wrong, but it seems difficult to justify distri- redistributive taxation if you're going to say that people have such strong bodily autonomy. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so I, I guess my initial thoughts on that are, one, I totally agree with you. Uh, she goes way too libertarian in that uh, Henry Fonda example. And it, it's implausible, and it's not even really consistent with some of the stuff she says later in the paper about like how um, like abortion is wrong if it's, uh, you know, if it's like a day before birth or whatever, right? You know, that uh, like... Okay, um, and I mean, maybe her position is it's wrong, but it shouldn't be illegal, and maybe it would be wrong if Henry Fonda not to walk over to the other side of the room, but you shouldn't force him. So maybe there's a way of making those consistent with each other. But uh, yeah, they're definitely not consistent with taxes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So taxes. I, I mean, I guess I'm not actually sure that part is inconsistent. I, I mean, I think. She, I think whether it is or it's not, I, I think she's wrong, right? I mean, like, I think, um, you know, like, I like I thought about this a lot during the arguments about, uh, you know, vaccine mandates, right? Mm-hmm. That it, um, like, there was this, you know, there was this thing that sometimes I would see progressives doing that I think is like a little much where they'd be like, oh, it's not actually coercion if you say if you like make it impossible to get a job or function without doing it. It's like, well, come on, guys, you don't want to say that. Like, clearly, clearly, that is coercion. It just might be justified coercion. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, I think that's consistent with saying that bodily autonomy is pretty important, but it's like getting a shot is a pretty minor violation of bodily autonomy versus, uh, having to carry around another being for nine months. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there are questions of degree. I mean, I read a book recently called Whose Body Is It Anyway? Where the author tries to make the move from redistributive taxation to like, oh, well, maybe people behind the veil of ignorance would want to redistribute kidneys from people who had them to people who didn't, right? I think that's insane. But um, it just yeah. seems like, yeah, it just seems to me like if you're going to say that if you're going to adopt Thompson's position and say something like uh, touching Henry Fonda's touching like the person's forehead doesn't meet the <laughs> standard, right? Then you're going to have a really hard time saying like, oh, taking 30% of your labor uh, to fund a public school suddenly does meet that threshold. Yeah. I mean, I would, I guess I would push back a little bit on that part because it's, you know, again, not because I think that, Thompson's right. I think she's wrong, but I think about that part, right? I, I think she's right about her sort of larger argument in that paper. She just takes it way too far in that example. Um, but because like taxation doesn't actually violate bodily autonomy. Like the thing, the, uh, I mean, it would be if your t- kidneys could be taxed away, but you know, I, I think that's like, pretty revealing in itself, right? That like, we think that um, a kidney that like, you'll actually literally be okay without, right? Or like, even like a, like, like even we could make it even like really trivial. It's like, I think that like, if we had, uh, you know, if we, I think we would be against like a government program that had like mandatory redistribution of teeth Right. Oh it's yeah, like, no. I, see, I have a strong intuition that there's something of bodily integrity that's important, right? Yeah. I think that that's where I would draw the line. I'm just not sure that there's really a distinction between uh, asking someone to touch someone's forehead or to perform some bodily act, and asking them to fork over thirty percent of the products of their labor. Yeah. Right? I think that that's a pretty similar thing. Because again, it's voluntary to pay tax. Like, if you want to survive, you have to work in uh, labor, and then you're paying a a portion of that to the government. Again, my I wouldn't use this to argue against taxation. I would just use this to say that George Thompson made a mistake in her reasoning. I'm not. I get what you're saying. I think I see where you're coming from. The reason I'm not necessarily persuaded by that is just that I think that. I would want to resist the slide from uh, from redistributing the the products of labor to mm-hmm. um, to to like forced labor. Right? So is there the specificity of the forced labor that you think is objectionable? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 mean, well, I just think they're different, right? Like, like in other words, like um, that, you know, that's uh, that there is, I mean, look, if somebody, let's say I'm like a day laborer who's, uh, who's paid in cash at the end of the day, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, if I have done a day of hard, miserable work and I've gotten paid and then I'm on my way home and a mugger, uh, like, stops me at gunpoint and, and takes all the money that I just earned, mm-hmm. like, I would be super pissed off. That'd be like a horrible thing to have happen. Yeah. But it's, it's going to be nothing like as bad as it would be if uh, the mugger, you know, got me at the beginning of the day and like led me at gunpoint to the job site to, uh, to do all that work for him for free. You know, like, like in other words, like, like I just, I would just resist saying that those are equivalent. Like they're, they're like might be a financially equivalent, right? You're losing just as much, you know, you're losing a day of work time. And so this is the money you would have otherwise made if you would have to do it. Like, but, it, but, but I just don't think those are morally equivalent actions. Like forcing I mean, Yeah. Like for the, for the analogy to hold, I guess it would be more like a mugger saying here at the end of your day, you have to work somewhere to survive. And at the end of your day, just know that I'm going to mug you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, uh, also like, I, I think it would still be probably pretty objectionable or it would be more analogous if like you had a bunch of foreheads that it was like Henry Fonda, pick one, like that would make the analogous or the situations analogous with the job, with the taxes, um, well, yeah, choice, say, choice like, of labor, but like Henry Fonda, Henry Fonda, like frog marching Henry Fonda across the room or like grabbing his hand and putting it on the forehead. Right. I, I actually think it's totally fine, right? Like that's, uh, so that's what I want to say. That's what I want to say that the situations are analogous enough so that my intuition about the taxes case is going to overrate the intuition. About the I just, like, I agree with you about both cases. I'm just not sure how analogous they are. Like, like I agree with you that taxation's fine. And I agree with you that uh, involuntary, you know, that like, you know, coercing Henry Fonda to cross the room and, and lay his hand on the, the brow for, you know, like a second, like is, is you know, if, if that's really going to like save somebody's life, that's like obviously fine. Like that's yeah. like, just not enough of a fanatic about, you know, um, like obviously forced labor is really bad, but that's such a trivial example that it just doesn't, you know, it, it just, I just don't think that rises to, uh, to the level of, uh, of, of, uh, of justifying Thompson's conclusion. So I agree with you about both cases. I'm just not sure how totally analogous they are. Cause I would just, I would just want to, um, I would just want to resist the, like, I would just want to resist the analogy between forcing somebody to work and taking away the product of the work. Like, like, I mean, both can even be bad, right? Or like, whatever. Both can be justified in some circumstances. I, yeah. but I, I just think I just don't think they're the same kind of thing. And I think that, like, at least in general, I think yeah. that forcing somebody to to work is worse than taking an equivalent amount of the product of their work. Yeah, and I guess I just have a different intuition that, like, the only difference is that with the uh, work that's not forced up front, you have a choice about where to work. But then besides that, they seem pretty analogous. It might just be a difference of intuitions. Um, I do want to shift to Philip Roth quickly. And I, yeah, yeah, please. Much time. So I was listening to um, an interview with the great Norman Finkelstein. Yeah. And when the topic of Philip Roth came up, I was like, this is going to be great. Norman Finkelstein, Brooklyn Jew, he's going to love Philip Roth, right? 
Um, <laughs> he's so, I think yeah, he likes Philip Roth. Predict Finkelstein's takes. Uh, what did he say? <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. Like you're either going to be 100% right or like impossibly wrong. But um, he he said he could in like his typical melodramatic fashion. He said he couldn't finish American Pastoral because he was wow. so disgusted or something like. I think his tone of voice. I was so disgusted. I couldn't finish American Pastoral. So um, he thinks it's a reactionary book. I think you've read it. I think I've read your review of American Pastoral or like a blurb you wrote about it in Jacket Band. Yep. Um, why is Finkelstein wrong? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I will say, I mean, as much as he is charmingly unpredictable, so, you know, you could have said anything about what he thought yeah. about Philip Roth. And I would have been like, okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess it, having heard it, that does make more sense to me than some of it would, even though I love that book. Like, you know, my, uh, a, you know, I mean, I, I think in that, in that blurb of Jacobin, it was like, I think it was there like, um, uh, it was their like roundup of contributors, like you know, beach reads, uh, and uh, in that blurb, right? I mean, I, I mentioned a story that you know, like, is about my ex-wife, but still makes me feel very fondly, right? You know, when I think back to it, which is that uh, you know, which is that we were uh, you know getting ready to to leave. Uh, you know, the year we spent in Korea, you know, like we were like sorting the books in the closet and, you know, into one pile to, to pack to take back to the U.S. and another pile to donate to the, the like take one, leave one library at the local expat bar. And um, uh, obviously I'm a book hoarder. And so we had many more, uh, I mean, she liked Kindle, but, you know, I'm a book hoarder. So there were like many more books to leave than to take. And I was making a lot of hard choices and American Pastoral was in the leave pile and she fished it out and she was like, don't be ridiculous. You love this book way too much to leave it. Uh, it's, so. it's a great, it's a great book. I, I thought it was good. It's not my favorite Philip Roth book, but it's definitely good. It is fucked up though, that the like spokesperson for Vietnam war resistance couldn't even form a sentence without like bungling it. Sure. I can like see that, that. That's a little bit fucked up. But, yeah. Um, I mean, I will say uh, Roth himself uh, was actually uh uh, was actually, I mean, even though you would, you, you definitely wouldn't know it from that book, but Roth himself was actually pretty anti-war. That was like something he used to argue with John up there. Yeah. And, but, um, and if you read, uh, his Nixon book, the R Gang, uh, which is fun fact is mentioned in the Watergate tapes, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's this guy who wrote this book. Is, yeah, I think he's, you know, it was like all this stuff. Um, but, um, he, uh, in, um, but yeah, you definitely wouldn't know it from American Pastoral. I mean, like, so I don't know if it's my absolute absolute favorite or not. It's definitely up there. I mean, that one, and um, so there are three of these books that he wrote in the 90s, and like one of them might have been just barely the 2000s that people will call the American Trilogy. They're not actually linked in any way except for thematically, but it's like that one, uh, The Human State. That's a great I, book. That's a fantastic, yeah, that's his best one, I think. I might agree with you. That's um, 
yeah, then uh, I'm here to come. Like, like the postmodern French literature professor. It's so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it might be my absolute favorite, but like those three, like those sort of big, thick, very political books from the 90s uh, might be kind of collectively my favorite uh, Roth books. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely get his point, right? Like, and like, funnily enough, uh, speaking of, you know, older Jewish men, uh, Gene Epstein, uh, of all people, once told me that he didn't like, uh, he didn't like American pastoral because, you know, I love American pastoral. <laughs> Even though, sorry, American pastoral, yeah, because he's a, uh, uh, he's not, um, even though he's obviously nothing like a leftist anymore, you know, he's like a right-wing libertarian, he's still, you know, like, like he still doesn't like, you know, he still thinks that the portrayal of the new left is unfair, and, and again, I totally, totally get it. Um, so I, I guess just kind of thinking about why I disagree, I mean, I guess there's basically the pitch that I made of that Jacobin book, which is that Okay, one, just as a novel, I think American Pastoral is fantastic. Uh, that's, um, like, it's the whole, you know, like, if for people who are listening who haven't read the book, there's, like, a, there's like a kind of opening section um, that's, like, shorter, and it sort of sets up the rest of the book. It's, like, a frame story, kind of, but it never goes back to it, and um, which is also in itself... I mean, it has some amazing writing in it, but then the sort of main section of the book, like the kind of core of it is this inner party that goes sort of apocalyptically wrong. And it's, uh, and it's just like kind of one sustained scene in one location. It goes on for like a hundred pages and it's just kind of perfect uh, as just the writing. And so like as a novel, I love it, but I actually even think there's something It's like, I don't know, man, I think there's something at the risk of sounding incredibly pretentious, apologize in advance, but it's just like, I, I, I think if you think about part of the reason that reading literature is like a good broadening thing to do on a human level, it's like, I think there's some value to getting inside the heads of people who don't see the world the same way we do and see how it looks. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, I I actually think like, I mean, cause, cause that book, I mean, even though, I mean, Philip Ross politics, as far as I could tell, are sort of vaguely new deal liberal. Um, they're, yeah. They're pretty shitty. I saw a video of him like saying that Obama was a great president and like a fine writer or something. It's kind of. Yeah. I, I mean, generally speaking, I actually remember Corey Robin did this thing once where he, he found quotes where Philip Roth was saying that like every Republican president was like, worse than any of the previous ones had been. It was this like special bad thing. And it's like, guys got a short memory, right? There's like, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, it's like, Oh, the rest of them were kind of reasonable. So what, you don't remember what you said about Nixon, um, which is very typical of a certain kind of American liberal. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, he's just a lib, you know, he's, he's got, and he's, um, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's just a Democrat basically. Uh, like he, you know, I mean, I Married a Communist is, is a book about McCarthyism. He's got a lot of anger about how bad McCarthyism was. Uh, and, you know, there's there's definitely some, you know, fondness for, for Roosevelt and all that. But like, 
if you just read American Pastoral, I mean, you would you would think he was a neoconservative, like his because uh, the way he's writing about the new left, the way he's writing about the New York riots is like everything's it's like the world's coming to an end. Uh, but I guess I just think that there's some intrinsic value in reading a great novel where you could like really dig into the head of somebody, you know, like, like I think it's, I think it's good to know your ideological enemies. I think it's like good to sort of get, see how things look from inside the head of somebody who, uh, you know, somebody who has this alien worldview where they, you know, they think that the new left is scary and, you know, and all that stuff. Like, I, I think that's like a, like, like, like to me, that's actually like, in a weird way, that's like a, even though I obviously disagree, I think in a weird way, that's actually like not a bad thing. That's like kind of a further virtue of the book. Yeah, no, it is. It is a great book. I agree. Um, I think a book that's slightly worse, but more in line with my politics um, is Armies of the Night by Norman Mailer. And it's about like the same era. I mean, it's about um, the time he went to protest the Vietnam War at the Pentagon, I think with like Dwight McDonald and it might have been like uh, some other poet and he ended up in a jail cell with Noam Chomsky because he got himself arrested. But that's a really good novel. It's like a nonfiction, a literary nonfiction story. Um, yeah. yeah, I was just heartbroken yeah. to see uh, Norman Augustine attacking Philip Roth. That was that was devastating for me. I too, I yeah. Was, I can definitely, yeah, I can definitely see that, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I like, um, have you read Finkelstein's new book? Uh, I have read some of it. It's have, so funny. It's so funny. Yeah, there, there is, I've definitely got into some of that. Um, like actually really early in the book, there's a thing where he's talking about like, um, I don't know, some like professor who, uh, invited him to to give a lecture about like Palestinian resistance, and then she, you know, and she like introduced him and everything, and then she like wrote something about it where she cited like everybody in the world except for him, and he's like he's just like reprinting the email that he's like yeah I see you've like learned what you need to disassociate yourself. Oh, that was a scathing email. I remember that. <laughs> And I, I, I remember I was like sitting at a restaurant reading that. I was like, God damn, Roman. All right. Uh, it's, it's a very like, and yeah. I, I mean, in a weird way, it's the same thing, right? And it's like, I like, um, I mean, like I spend most of my time just kind of like arguing for the stuff that seems right to me, which is mostly very like straight down the line lefty stuff. Like, um, you know, that's, and I'm like very happy to like spend my life doing that, but it's like, I don't necessarily like, I don't necessarily need to get like political agreement. Isn't necessarily one of the things I'm looking for when I sit down to read a novel. And I, uh, and I don't know. I mean, there's something very refreshing about the fact that Norm Finkelstein is, is like, even if I think some of his takes are, you know, very wrong, like the Ukraine thing, like I, I just, there's, you know, there's something like really refreshing about this like strange, funny, very smart guy who's uh, who has who just like has uh, you know burned all of his bridges a long time ago. And oh, he's uncancelable. He really can't be canceled now. 
So it's just like, yeah, you're just going to like, he's not formed by like Twitter discourse. He is just going to say exactly whatever the fuck is in his mind <laughs> at the moment. And uh, I'm here for it. And I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. Long live Norman Finkelstein. Everyone check out his book. Okay. Thanks. Ben. Absolutely. I'll check All right. Out thanks. All right. Gonna want to wrap up pretty soon, but see if I can take the last couple of callers. George. Hello. You hear me? Hello. Yep. So uh, I just finished a Kant class uh, this spring semester, and my final paper I did pretty good. I actually kind of responded to Philip Afoot, uh, and it was the paper that you brought up in uh, Renegade University. Okay. Yep. The uh, the uh, morality is a system of hypothetical imperatives. That one. Yes. So I, I responded in, um, defending Kant, but, um, when my professor gave me my paper back, the only criticism he kind of like, I mean, it was a good, it was like, like he was really impressed with the work and everything. Like structurally, he said it was really nice. The only thing that he said is that Philip of Foot can still kind of like make a little pushback against um the idea that i was kind of going for but okay um the thing is is that um i kind of defended this idea that kant sees us as um rational agents who make decisions based on a conception that we hold of ourselves so um this idea is caught gotten from like it's like um it's developed from this author named um, Christine Korsgaard. I don't know if you know her. Uh, I, I mean, I know who she is. I'm not like super familiar with all of her views, but yeah, go on. Yeah, so she made a book called The Sources of Normativity. And yep. um, she kind of like goes over this idea that um, we are evaluative beings in a sense, and th- in the sense of like, we have um we act upon certain desires based on reasons we don't just like um look at an inclination and just act upon it we're kind of like well maybe i should i should study instead of going to the beach because i'm a student right so like have a certain conception of myself as a student that kind of like gives me the like binds me towards like a certain um action that i should that i should take on for myself um and she kind of says that like well not every sort of conception of ourselves are always going to be like formalistic um because sometimes i can i can reason myself out of being a student i could just say like well i don't want to be a student anymore i can i i i i want to be a musician or something like this but she says something like there's something that you can't get yourself out of and it's the fact that you are an evaluative being you're a rational agent who acts for the sake of reasons. So you give yourself principles mm. and when you act inconsistent with certain principles, you are sort of making an exception of yourself. And when the principle is a moral yeah. principle, you are acting inconsistent with a certain prince with a certain conception that you willed yourself um, into being in a sense. And um, the only problem that my professor saw is this 
the fact of, well, somebody can say this is nice and everything, but how is this is how is this going to bind? Like, how is going to how is this going to bind everyone into the moral project? Like, if yeah. I have a certain concept a certain conception of myself as abiding by the moral law, that doesn't mean that everybody else has to abide by the moral law, right? Um, right. Which is kind of like what Philippa Foot is kind of getting at. Do you think so? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, my question, I guess, I guess that was one of my questions. My second question is like, in what specific way do you find yourself having issues with like the categorical imperative? Um, I guess what I think about the categorical imperative is that uh, there's something, uh, the second formulation, especially the formula of humanity that, you know, you always treat humanity, whether yourself or the person of another as an end in itself and never merely as a means to an end. Like, I think there's something very right about that. There's something very intuitively appealing sure. about that. So it's like, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not hostile to the idea that there's like something important about morality that Kant is, is putting his finger on. Uh, but what I'm skeptical of is the idea that this derives from like, uh, you know, like pure practical reason that there's like, no, that like you're, that it's not just like, an intuitively plausible moral principle, but like that it's uh that it's something that you're you're deeply irrational if you don't go along with. Uh, I I guess I, I just never I always feel when I read Kant or when I read Kantians that it's like I, I I never quite see a compelling reason to think that. Oh okay. I mean like I, I mean in some way it's in some ways it's kind of the same as your your professor's point that you were saying was like fun. I mean, like that's the, I mean, this is kind of the, this is kind of the reason why I like that uh, Philippa Foot paper. Cause I mean, this is, this is kind of what she's getting at there too. Right. right. I mean, the sort of idea that there's something that's like, uh, I mean, of course we can care about principles as well as, you know, I mean, it's not just that we have moral reactions to particular cases. I think, it's plausible that there's like something that's like sort of deep about us. And that, you know, if you want to say it's our nature as reasoning agents or whatever, I'm not going to fight you on that. Like that, that we tend to want to formulate more general principles and you know, all that stuff. But it's like um, the idea that there's something about this that's like universally binding in the way right. that Kantians seem to what is just a something I never feel like I've I've seen a a fully persuasive case for. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to like attack you or anything. I mean, like I I Please. mean to say this because <laughs> no, I mean like I mean to say this because like um I I want to take that paper and kind of like so I. I'm almost done. And so I will probably get my bachelor's sometime this year, but like, I want to do like an independent study on this because I think, yep. I think Kant really, I mean, this class, like besides the professor, he's a very inspirational guy, but like, um, I think Kant really spoke to me this semester and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I was a little, I mean, I mean, I still, 
I gave my little response as to like how something can be binding, but I don't think you would be totally convinced because like I brought it up to my professor and my professor was like, well, my professor kind of like knows you. And he's like, well, if I put my Ben Burgess hat, like, I don't think he would buy that. So <laughs> I have to think about it a little bit more. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's important to get um, to get these challenges and respond to them, at least in order to like, be more philosophically uh, productive, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I kind of, um, I mean, I kind of hope you're right. I mean, there'd be something that would be very satisfying about being able to say like, uh, not only like, not only can I give you my argument for my moral conclusions that, you know, I think, you know, follows from these principles that, you know, I, I think you're going to form some kind of overlap between our commitments or that like are, are just such a deeply embedded premise that, you know, I, I, uh, that like, this is the best I can possibly do is to show that it follows from that or whatever. But like, that it's like, there's just no way that a rational person could reject my most basic premises. Like, yeah, that'd be awesome. That, that, I mean, that's, <laughs> I'd love that. Right. Uh, I'm, I, I, sadly I'm skeptical, but, uh, I, I would, I would like, it. I would like it if it were true. Um, I. Do you subscribe to like more of a Humean style? Like, um, definitely. Um, okay. Like, like, okay, so thinking about that course guard example that you had earlier about the student, um, I, right. I think it's sort of interested and instructive because it's like, okay, um, like it could be, you know, if the only reason that I'm a student is that, you know, I don't know, somebody made me somehow and like I'm planning to, you know, and it's like the first chance I get, I'm going to stop being one. And, you know, if I flunk out of school, all the better, because that'll stop being one sooner, right? Then that's going to be very uncompelling to me, right? That, that like, well, here's what I should do because I'm a student. Uh, it's, I, I think if that's a plausible example, it's because I care about being a student, right? That that's, and, you know, I, I don't, you know, maybe you could say there's like a sort of more, I sh and, and, you know, I'm not necessarily even saying that, like, caring about being a student is going to be at the sort of bottom level of, like, tracing our way back to the deepest commitments that I care about. Like, it could very well be that that follows from some more general thing that I care about. But um, I, I don't – I guess the sort of very humid intuition I have a hard time getting past is that uh, if if I – care about X and somebody says, well, why should you care about X? Um, and I could say, well, because of Y, that makes sense if Y is something else that I care about or that I expect you to care about or that, you know, I, I have, uh, like I care about in a more basic way or something like that, right? But it's like, there's this sort of, like the, the sort of force of that should, I mean, this is the, you know, I mean, this is that kind of basic intuition that it's like hypothetical imperatives all the way down. That's like the right. force of that should is that, you know, I should because of this other goal. And 
And if somebody asked, like, if somehow we could get down to the goals that I care about in the most basic way, and somebody was like, okay, but it's like, why should you care about that? Then it's like, well, I mean, is there some goal in light of which I shouldn't care about it? Or like, is that, you know, but it's like, if you're just kind of saying, like, in a certain sense that I'm, I'm kind of comfortable saying that, like, once you get down to the bottom, that's sort of a pseudo question, because, like, that that suggests, like, if you're really down at the bottom, right, there's nothing else you can use to uh, evaluate it in terms of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I, it's a very, like, and I'm not totally sure, like, if you're about how I would think about this in terms of the sort of options for, like, you know, schmancy meta-ethical theories, but I would just say that kind of basic intuitive human picture would sort of at least constrain which schmancy meta-ethical options seem reasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, like, I think Philippa Foote and Hume are getting at something. I think are, like, I think um, something I think they get at is that maybe the force from the categorical imperative is just, like, this tendency that we have that we hit, we habitually impose on each other certain sort of like moral actions and like the moral actions that usually follow from the categorical imperative are just strongly um, enforced than other moral actions, right? Um, uh, and like we can like directly appeal to them, and they 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 seem like they resonate with most people. Most people can understand them, whereas like the categorical imperative is like. It's like this like um, construction of reason that um, it's re it's a construction of reason that's done in the right way, which is like less like um, empirically um, verified, I guess. And um, yeah. I mean, like one last thing um, yeah. to, to jump to your point with the student thing. Um, I think what Chorus Guard is trying to get there is like there she distinguishes between practical identity Practical identity are the types of identities you take based on what you care about, right? So, like, I could uh, certainly I could stop caring about being a student. I could stop caring about um, being being in Florida, right? I, and I could just move and like take on a different identity, right? I could be an entertainer. I could stop caring about philosophy altogether and just, you yeah. know, uh, get into like Twitch or something. I don't know, um, but like. Um, she says that there's something that that is formalistic in all of that. So you can think of this as form and matter. So matter is going to be contingent and it will change, but form is going to be the underlying foreground to any sort of matter, right? Yeah. Um, and she 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 seems to argue that like the fact that we are evaluative rational beings is always going to be an intrinsic part of us that's going to come with obligations that are linked to our humanity. And those sort of obligations have a moral, have like, have moral qualities that um, yeah. set, give us things that we should do and constraints as to things that we shouldn't do um, based on our will to live and act and these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, uh, by the way, um, I've, yeah. been, I've been promoting your Substack to my colleagues in school, and they've been, they've been, they've been like, "Oh, who's this Ben Burgess guy?" And I, I send because I, you know, uh, I, I want to. I, I think you do good work, Ben, and I think the, I think that is great that you, you have like a, 
passion to show philosophy to other people outside of academia. And um, my professor thinks it's it's a great thing that you do because it introduces philosophical concepts to people who wouldn't be who wouldn't run into it, run into them, right? Um, so thank you for that. Well, I really appreciate that, George. Um, okay, I am probably uh, thinking about if there's anything that I else that I have to say about Christine Korsgaard. I think probably. So I think that that's um, probably going to uh, where where are you by the way? Like what what university? Just out of curiosity. Oh, uh, Florida, Florida International University. So I do want to pursue a master's in philosophy, um, but I will probably most likely get out of Florida. <laughs> um, my professors have been trying to tell me to go to Madison, Wisconsin, because like they say really? it's like more lip. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. They said, yeah, they said it's like more liberal there and it's like more accepting because I'm also like non-binary also. So, uh, so yeah, like, um, I could definitely see that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually had a, uh, yeah, he, he doesn't anymore. He hasn't in years, but I, I had like a good personal friend who used to teach at FIU for, you know, uh, a few years at least. But, uh, oh, nice. Yeah, well, because I, I went to, you know, I went to uh, graduate school at the University of Miami, so I was around there. Uh, mm. But, uh, cool, yeah. Um, he right, actually, well, hey. um, yeah. Um, if, if you, um, well, I'll, I guess I'll I'll let you know on Twitter, but like my professor is actually making maybe you could check it out, but like it'll, it'll there will be um he'll be um releasing a book this year and it's it's um it's about um Kantian autonomy versus like um uh versus phones and technology and how technology is like basically over, like overcome most of most of our aspects of our lives and stuff like this. And um, how technology can like um, be, be can be unethical towards our autonomy sometimes. What's these, the these what's the name of the book? Uh, actually, I have like the first two chapters here, but I don't even have the name. <laughs> I mean, I could send you. Yeah, send me a DM or something. That's uh, yeah. yeah, or just yeah, that sounds good. Um, yeah, do it. Do it as a DM, not a you know. Don't just like tag me on Twitter because right, right. I, was, I had uh, you know for this <laughs> not unrelated maybe to a professor's point. Uh, like three years ago, I finally got around to uh, changing my Twitter settings so I I, I don't get uh, to really restrict what notifications I get, which which felt like. You know the scene in science fiction movies where the telepath can finally finally stops involuntarily hearing everybody's thoughts, but uh, um, but yeah. Uh, so uh, so do I, I don't know if I follow you or not. So just in case I don't, uh, do do send us a DM. But yeah, I'm, I'm actually super curious to hear about that book. Okay, right, right. Uh, I am gonna uh, I'm gonna cut it off there. Uh, so it was. Um, because all of these calls were really interested. Uh, so 
I wanted, uh, you know, I, I wanted to sort of give everybody an adequate amount of time. I think I, other than like one person who dropped out of the line, I think I got everybody. But uh, I'm going to stop there for today. This was a lot of fun. Uh, should do more of these. Like maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to do like one of these, like, uh, like the college, like maybe like once a month or something. Do it as like a an AMA because I really enjoyed this. But anyway. Uh, thank you to everybody who called in uh, tomorrow night on the main show on YouTube. I'm uh, going to have uh, Matt McManus on, uh, who uh, for the first half, he's going to talk about his uh, book, or not his book, his article in uh, Jacobin about Matt Walsh uh, and, uh, and, um, you know, so yeah, if you just look up Matt McManus, Matt Walsh, you can see that article um and uh and which i think is a really good article so uh we're going to talk about that uh during the first half of the show then the second half we're going to play i did this dialogue on tuesday uh with christine sitnowich uh who just wrote this thing for the boston review about um well basically if you see saw my substack today uh it's what i was writing about there uh, and so uh, we're going to play my conversation with Christine for that Boston Review event during the second half of the episode. And then uh, Zach and Gavin from the Vanguard are going to be on uh, to hang out in the post game for patrons. So I think it should be a fun episode. Uh, exactly. Hot down on bad action. Exactly. Uh, yeah, sadly, I, you know, sadly, I don't think we're going to get the other Matt to show up to defend his views. But, you know, the door is always open. <laughs> so in any case uh, going to cut off there for today good stuff coming up tomorrow on GTA thank you again everybody for calling in really enjoyed this left is best <laughs>